0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 30th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're gonna be looking at a few developments that took place here in the week that led up to the Memorial Day weekend. First thing we'll be looking at this week is a tax court case where the court looked at whether they had the authority to review an IRS notice for certification of seriously delinquent tax debt to the State Department as part of their general ability to review the adequacies of such notices and require the IRS to pull them back if they find there was some issue. We'll talk about whether that's one of the issues that could allow them to pull it back. Second, we'll go into another. The latest IRS warning on scammy, shall we say, employee retention tax credit, Individuals pushing that concept and warning to employers about the dangers of getting involved in such situations. This time though, the IRS did provide some specific warning signs for employers to look at. Plus some discussion of methods that those who are going well beyond the limits of the ERC and convincing people that they qualify for it. some of the ways they use to essentially deceive people. The IRS actually uses the term in this notice of victims, for the employers who become part of this and talks about ERC mills for the first time. So the IRS's terminology is getting a little bit rougher at this point, shall we say. Finally, we'll look at a four circuit case that studies a topic we've talked about numerous times. That is section 7502, proving timely filing of a document with the IRS. And we're gonna talk about whether 7502 Uh, basically totally supplants the common law mailbox rule or supplements it. We'll discuss there's been some back and forth, especially depending upon how you look at this. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the nuances here. But in any event, the Fourth Circuit decides that 7502 basically supplants does not supplement the common law mailbox rule. So common law mailbox rule does not allow you to prove or get a presumption of delivery of a document to the IRS. The uh, basically the fourth circuit has decided that 7502 effectively is the only way that you can get a presumption of delivery, but they do in this case allow the case to move forward, uh, presuming the taxpayer can make a showing or at least has a chance to make a showing of actual delivery. And there are some facts in this case where it's possible the taxpayer may be able to make that showing. That's usually one that we say, well, it's going to be very difficult to show the IRS got something if they're claiming they don't have it, which, as you might guess in this case, they're claiming they don't have it. But we'll talk about why there is at least some question about whether the IRS has the documents in this case and at least some of the ideas that the Fourth Circuit, at least, allowed the case to move forward on. So let's talk about our first case here maduti versus commissioner tax court uh, published case 160 tc number 13 that came out on may 23rd of 2023 now this particular case this is not going to be our most sympathetic taxpayer but there is one issue that this person raises that the tax court decides they have to deal with now if you're not aware internal revenue code section 7345 provides for the IRS to send notice to the U.S. State Department if they have a taxpayer who has a seriously delinquent tax debt. Now, this is basically a tax debt of more than inflation adjusted, $50,000, that's outstanding and certain other criteria are met. Obviously, the purpose of this is to, you know, restrict the taxpayer's use of their passport until they go see the IRS and get the issue resolved and it started a payment program or something else that gets us pulled away. So we'll talk, you know, the idea is it's a collection vehicle that the IRS was given. As I recall, this goes back to 2015's PATH Act is when we got this particular thing added. One of the requirements in 7430 or 7345 is the IRS must provide contemporaneous notice to the taxpayer when they make the referral to the State Department. As well, 7345 provides in 7345E that there can be a judicial review of certain items related to this. So a taxpayer does have a right to go to court and get a hearing that's separate and apart from things like collection due process hearings and things like that. This is a separate case before the tax court as to whether the IRS properly certified this person as having a seriously delinquent tax debt. The actual section at 7345, A, provides essentially, as you would expect, the IRS, you know, if the Secretary of State, that is State Department, receives certification from the IRS, the individual has seriously linked with tax bet, debt, uh, you know, if that Secretary of Treasury State does that, then Treasury Secretary shall transmit certification to the Secretary of State for action with respect to denial, revocation, or limitation of a passport pursuant to Section 32101 of the FAST Act. Now, what is a seriously delinquent tax debt? As I said, it is an unpaid, legally enforceable federal tax liability of individual, which has been assessed, which is greater than 50000 but this is adjusted for inflation, so the number is higher than 50000 today. Don't worry about that right now. And with respect to which a notice of lien has been filed, essentially, administrative rights with respect to such filing has been exhausted or lapsed, and, or a levy is made. So either a lien or levy notice of lien or a levy has gone out, and with the notice of lien, that the taxpayers' right to basically challenge that have also now uh, been exhausted or they've lapsed. Now there are some exceptions. It does not include a debt that's being paid in a timely manner, including including pursuant to an agreement to which you're a party, basically installment agreements. A debt with respect collection is suspended with respect to individual because a due process hearing is being requested or pending, or because there is currently an innocent spouse claim, uh, coming up with regard to this particular case that hasn't been dealt with yet. Right. Now D is the one that's going to come under basically the consideration in this decision. And that says that the IRS shall contemporaneously notify an individual of any certification under this rule or any reversal of certification under this rule with respect to the individual. Such so notice shall include a description in simple and non-technical terms of the right to bring the civil action under subsection E. Subsection E is the part that allows the courts to review this. And that says that once they've notified an individual under subsection D, the taxpayer may bring a civil action against the United States in a district court or in the tax court. To determine whether certification was erroneous or whether the commissioner has failed to reverse certification. For purpose of the preceding sentence, the court first acquiring jurisdiction over such an action shall have sole jurisdiction. So essentially, make your choice. You're going district court or tax court, and that's going to be the only court that will have a right to hear it. You, you can't go to district court. If they don't come out your way, then go back and say, well, we're going to go to tax court and try again. You got one try at doing this. If the court determines such certification was erroneous, the court may order the IRS, notify the Secretary of State that such certification was erroneous. So our key question here is going to be, if the problem we have is that the IRS failed to notify the taxpayer of, you know, the referral to the State Department, is that a defect that requires the commissioner, or when we go to court, that the court, we could challenge in court and say, well, that's going to require the commissioner to withdraw the certification of the Department of State and then go back through the process again. Now we already had a district court ruling that came down, which should be mentioned in this case, uh, where the district court ruled, nope, that, that that's not really something here. The notification is separate and apart. And we'll talk a little bit about why that's the case, how they rule it. Now, in this case, the taxpayer failed to file a return for a number of years, right? And so they assess liability against this taxpayer. The taxpayer did not request a collection due process hearing. Okay. And the way they tell it, as the court tells us, that on October 1st, 2018, they certified this individual as owing a severely, seriously delinquent tax debt from tax years 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 12. 10 to 11, the only two skipped. The tax, the IRS can currently set Mr. Medudi at his last known address, a notice of certification of your seriously delinquent federal tax debt to the State Department, and at that point, his assessed liabilities totaled $106,346. So we have this notification sent to basically the State Department. Right, The taxpayer filed the tax court regarding the certification, obviously trying to get it reversed because he wants to be able to essentially use his, uh, his passport. Right, The tax court was not terribly impressed with most of his claims that there was no seriously delinquent tax debt but they did find one question they hadn't addressed before. Can it consider the IRS's failure to give proper notice? Is that something they are allowed to look into? And at least potentially, if they determine proper notice was not given to force the IRS to reverse this certification. And is a question of jurisdiction in this case, do they have the right to do it? Okay. Now here's the catch. The court looked at, as the district court did, the specific language in 7435 E. And the tax court found that that jurisdiction conferred in that section does not extend the review of the IRS's compliance with the notice provision in 7345 D. It provides the actual ruling, 7345 E-1, provides that after certification, the taxpayer may bring a civil action against the commissioner in a tax court to determine whether certification was erroneous or where the commissioner has failed to reverse certification. And it says the text of that, as we said from the case in the district court focuses exclusively on the commissioner's access certif- certifying seriously delinquent tax debts and authorizes our court to determine whether those actions are erroneous. Okay. Now, as that U S district court noted, uh, 7345 does not does not say a flawed or failed notice renders the certification erroneous anywhere in the actual statute, and they said the structure of 7345 belies such a conclusion. Uh, subsections A and B describe what secretary must do to transmit certification to secretary of state and identify which de- debts qualify as delinquent, delinquent debt. Neither one of those two suggests notice is a prerequisite to proper certification. And notes to the contrary, section D, which is the notification, says the notice should be contemporaneous with certification of the state, the Department of State. So logically, it can't be a prerequisite if we're doing it at the same time that we are basically, uh, you know, certifying the state. Contemporaneous, it's not a prerequisite. So bottom line, we don't have to do that. Now, as we said, it did not exchange the review and as the tax court just adopted the district court's view here and they said look we don't see any real prejudice against the taxpayer's interest if they don't receive proper notice of certification uh it, there is no under 7345e there is no period of limitations after during which you have to bring this action before the court if that certification is still outstanding you have a right to go back and apparently challenge the initial certification challenge the status as of today so the theory is you're not prejudiced now I'm sure somebody might say well I might be if I don't f-. the way I find out about it is I go to the airport to get on a plane for this big business trip and I suddenly discovered there that my passport's been revoked but you know that that's not and it is true the statute doesn't really seem to worry about that that's not the issue and so the bottom line is the court said, we do not believe our jurisdiction determine whether certification is erroneous and comp- encompasses patrolling compliance with the requirement to provide notice to the taxpayer in simple and non-technical terms of the right to bring a civil action under this section. Thus, tough luck. You're not getting anything in this realm. Next up, the IRS has yet again come out with another notice regarding warning signs for misleading employee retention scams simple steps can avoid improperly filing claims and this is irs news release ir 2023 105 came on may 25th probably one of the big differences in this one versus the other one is the wording we're going to find in it and the fact that it gives specific things that to the irs says your you know the people you're working with may be scammers if and they list a number of options. So, I mean, it's very explicit and certainly calls out some things uh, that I expect you've seen many of these things. In fact, if you watched any basically television, I think in the past you know, few months or even this weekend, you probably saw some of these things. So, bottom line, it is a, yet another IRS release warning employers about overly aggressive marketing and say they notice promoters continue to heavily market contingent fee arrangements to file ERC claims. And at least the advertising or promotion implies that virtually everybody qualifies. So your business qualifies suggests, without really saying that, you know, that up to 20 in this case, up to $26,000 per employee. Well, they seem to imply that that's just the norm. So how many employees you got times 26,000. Hey, we're great and that we can complete a really fast process to determine if you qualify. And so it's gonna be like no pain, no excess, not complicated. Yeah, that's the type of advertising you're seeing. And a lot of it is very blatant and out in the very wide open public. So it's not very difficult to find these ads. A The release has a quote from the commissioner stating, aggressive marketing of the employer tax retention credit continues preying on innocent businesses and others. Aggressive promoters present wildly misleading claims about this credit. They can pocket handsome fees while leaving those claiming the credit at risk of having the claims denied or facing scenarios where they need to repay the credit. Okay. And notes, the IRS is stepping up audit and criminal investigation work involving these claims. Businesses, tax organizations and others considering applying for this credit need to carefully review the official requirements for this limited program for applying those who improperly claim the credit face follow-up action from the IRS. Now I'm going to take them aside for a second. Just this past week, I watched one broadcast from a firm about the ERC and, you know, the status of enforcement and things happening. I also attended a one hour webinar, uh, that related with a firm who is currently working ERC exams and their status and, I heard commentary during during the discussion at the start of the Phoenix Tax workshop this week uh, regarding from an attorney who has also been involved in handling a bunch of these exams that have been referred to the law firm. And the big takeaway is, number one, there are real exams out there. You know, there are people handling multiple real exams out there. In a lot of these cases, the exams are not ones that You know, they're not things that the firm itself went out and filed for the credit. Now parties are looking to them to help them, you know, deal with this issue and deal with the problem. One interesting comment made in the one hour session I attended was that this firm who is handling ERC credit, you know, ERC audits that, you know, they, they're, they've got a bunch going on. I think they said about 20 right now are in play. And one thing they noted was that every time they've reviewed the calculation of the credit that's been prepared by this third party, it's consistently had significant errors. Some of which were actually, you know, against the taxpayer, the taxpayer assuming they otherwise qualify would qualify for a larger credit than what was claimed other cases going the other direction, but kind of an interesting aside also commentary was made and consistent on all of these. That the IRS will primarily focus initially on simple qualification. The idea is, if these guys don't qualify, we don't need to worry about the calculations, right? It's said and done. Also, reports that the supply, the broad, super broad supply chain theories are not working well. The IRS is basically, uh, you know, wanting you to qualify under a strict reading of the supply chain Q and A in notice 2021-20 as opposed to the very broad view where people seem to believe that if you ever you know had any issue getting anything for your business at all during covid that somehow that qualifies you for every single quarter uh that doesn't work neither but neither do things that maybe aren't quite that broad but still are broader than the single source supplier specifically shut down by a COVID order you can point to Right. And you can explain exactly why that had to shut down. You can show exactly why that component is absolutely crucial to your business and really put you at a major disadvantage. And you have things like purchase orders and other or other orders submitted that you have documentation you could not get fulfilled, you know, basically during that time frame from that order. And you've got a lot of information from supplier to back this up finally it's also going to be insanely important to have the actual uh govern- the actual government orders that apply and they're not accepting super broad views of just generic things you know obviously we know this Th- this one to me is absolutely no question that simply recommendations of the cdc clearly do not apply they are not orders you know the you know the agriculture department suggests we all eat various Uh, you know, things from proper food groups constantly. That's not a government order to do it. It's not like we're going to be hauled to jail if you don't eat your veggies. But same difference here. Uh, That means things like if you're doing it saying, well, you know, the CDC said if somebody was somebody was tested positive for COVID, you know, they had to stay away from work for two weeks. No, they, they said they should stay away. But there was unless a unless another government, a state locality, actually imposed that as a rule and said you know you've got to do that And if you fail to do it you know we're going to come down and shut your business down hit you with huge fines haul the owners off to jail it doesn't work so be aware of that on that side right the irs also in the notice starts out and reminds anyone who improperly claims a credit they must pay it back possibly with penalties and interest and this is something that you seriously need to consider or you know if you have clients that you think of claim credits that are questionable, you know, potentially recoverable. They need to understand they could find themselves in a much worse cash position. If they have to pay the credit back, the credit was never claimed in the first place. And even if you could get out of the, you're probably not getting out of the interest, but even if you get out of the penalties, they're going to be required to pay back money that they may have believed was simply, you know, available for them to do whatever they want. In fact, I've seen that wording in solicitations I looked at over the weekend. You know, where, oh, you can use that for anything. So if you've taken that $2 million you got for your ERC credit, and you've now in, used that to invest in a big building, you know, you've, you've got an office building you've added, you've got space you've added, you've got all of this expansion you've done. Well, if they come back and want the 2 million back, you don't have it anymore. It's got a building, uh, which may or may not be simple to sell in the current market, uh and you know can we get to two million dollars and how quickly and presumably you were using that building for something so yeah it it could be very nasty even if you even get them out of the penalties and don't forget representation will not be totally cheap especially if it turns out that the ERC people they're working with were truly scammers and nobody's answering the phone anymore which by the way has already happened in the reports of a case Uh, of the first prosecution that was reported from back in February you see a lot of reports now on like if you look at the Google review for the firm that was involved in that you're going to notice that yes they're 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 not you know they're not returning phone calls lots of people complaining that you know you know suddenly the IRS showed up and you know they had no support no help from them they up having to pay all of these penalties yeah you got to watch for that okay so what are the warning signs the IRS say to look out for? unsolicited calls or advertisements mentioning an easy application process well that pretty much is every single one I've seen not well not totally I've seen some legit you know that that make it clear that nobody qualifies that you might no guarantee and you know we can discuss etc but way too many of them because this gets people's attention faster you don't get people's attention by saying well there's a possibility you know kind of at least an outside chance that maybe you can qualify and maybe you know and while you couldn't get up twenty-six thousand, it's probably less than that you know per employee and you know that all the way down the line and we need to look at all your payroll and we need to have all these government orders we need to understand your business entirely that's not nearly as attractive as an email that says you know com- complete this five minute application and we'll tell you instantly if you qualify for all of this yeah that's a little different statement that the promoter or company can determine erc eligibility within minutes As I said, that sounds a lot more attractive than somebody says, you know, it's going to be like a two week or basically a month long process to do this, which by the way is much more realistic if you're doing it right than saying, you do it in two minutes. If there's a large upfront fee to claim the credit, you know, are they, is the credit, is the fee for them payable when you know the IRS approves the claim or is the fee payable right up front when you submit the claim? Uh, fees based on percentage of the refund amount of the employee retention credit claim. This is by far the norm. Contingent fees and the IRS makes a very straight and very blunt statement here. This is a similar warning sign for average taxpayers who should always avoid a tax preparer basing their fee on the size of the refund. The IRS is saying no, in essence, and I'm going to put this bluntly. There will be no penalty relief effectively. If you had a contingent fee arrangement. Uh, in one of the sessions I was involved, they talked about dealing with this in other credit contexts in earlier years where various promoters have been aggressively pushing credits and then people get on the exam, and this firm had been involved with representing and trying to get these people out of the trouble. They said, bottom line, as soon as the IRS discovers there was a contingent fee arrangement, as far as they're concerned, a reasonable person should realize that the party you're paying contingent fee only has, you know, has an incentive to overclaim wildly the credit to get the biggest payout so if you only relied upon them you didn't re- reasonably try to compute the right tax and this is it it's over we're throwing the book at you and to be blunt the tax court has generally gone along with that theory right the courts go along with it. they're saying a reasonable person should realize this sounds too good to be true and they're being compensated by making it even less you know Much, 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 much too good to be true sounding. You should see a problem. And they're not going to have much sympathy if you don't. Uh, Aggressive claims from the promoter that the business receiving solicitation qualifies before any discussion of the group stack situation. If there's a termination before there's been any sort of detailed discussion of the reality of your situation, that's a huge red flag. In reality, the credit is a complex credit that requires careful review before applying. Not something a salesperson can basically qualify you for in two minutes on the phone that's not going to happen and they also said they see wildly aggressive claims suggesting for marketers suggestions from marketers urging businesses to submit claims because there is nothing to lose in reality those improperly receiving the credit could have to repay the credit along with substantial interest and penalties yes you can lose and there are some computations which have gone through the worst case scenario where you end up having to pay back the, this refund. You end up having to pay a 20% penalty because it's during be an improper refund, meeting the improper refund penalty claims. You essentially, you know, have to also, you still eat the fee because you can't find the promoter, right? You have to pay the interest compounded daily while you do this. Oh, by the way, because there was a material misrepresentation of facts in the refund claim, even though your client didn't make the representation, it turns out the promoter did to, you know, kind of you know, muddy the water and try to make it sound good. There's a material misreputation. By the way, the statute for coming after the money is five years from the date it's paid, not two. Be aware of that. Material misrepresentation related to a refund claim, the erroneous refund extension of the statute. It's, it's not just fraud. Fraud will get that extension as well if there's a fraudulent claim. And again, we have court cases from a while back showing that fraud does not have to be the fraud of the taxpayer it could be the fraud of the preparer same thing about the misrepresentation does not have to be misrepresentation of the taxpayer the question is where the refund credit claim had a misrepresentation not whether the taxpayer was the one responsible for it so that means it's very 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 possible that you may be paying back the credit well beyond the time the statute is closed to be able to amend your returns to get the income tax back from the disallowed wages that were, you know, that you use to get the credit. So it can be way more expensive than, you know, just simply, oh, what's wrong? I asked for a $2 million credit. They come back, they say, no, I give them 2 million back. And, you know, hey, I'm no worse off. You know, I'm I'm not gonna get anything I don't ask. So, you know, and it won't be that bad if I do ask. So, hey, what's the problem? Can be a big problem, okay? Now, it says the IRS then concludes that section by saying they may rely about eligibility requirements. And in addition, this is something i mentioned before there is a risk of somebody using the credit as a ploy to steal taxpayers' identity or take a cut of the taxpayers' improperly claimed credit. You're going to be turning over these people that you only know from this email solicitation or from the TV ad they took out, you're going to be turning over to them an insane amount of personally identifiable information on your company and your employees and everybody in the company that can obviously be misused so it's not totally beyond the realm of possibilities and you know these things happen because whenever you see this sort of thing people will set this up that you could see a scammy operation set up do a scammy claim get paid by you disappear and suddenly have also then at the end has they liquidated their assets one of them they liquidated was all that information they liquidated on the dark web to be able to get payments for all of this nice personal information allowing them to steal the identity of the company and steal the identity of all the company's employees that won't be a problem at all i'm sure Uh, now the IRS also has ways unscrupulous promoters lure their victims to go along with these things we see it in aggressive marketing on radio television online as well as phone call and text messages IRS is calling that out. Yeah, if this stuff is heavily advertised, it's a problem. Direct mailing, they send out fake letters. And I've seen this one actually. I've actually seen this and multiple people report this one. From the Department of Employee Retention Credit, it looks identical to an IRS notice. Right, they're made to look like official IRS correspondence or official government mailing with language urging immediate action. So it looks like a government document. Yeah, that's a scam from the start. Just, And that's one I can't believe people, once they're aware it's not the government, don't realize immediately you're dealing with a scammy operation. But sometimes they don't. Uh, leaving out key details. They don't accurately explain the eligibility requirement, how the credit is computed. May make broad arguments suggesting all employers are eligible without evaluating employers' individual circumstances. It happens. They say, for instance, there are some obvious things that they often omit. Um, you know, if they tell you that you know the actual maximum number is like 33,000, you ever see that number? That is hugely misleading because only for the fourth quarter and secondly, this would take a really odd combo of circumstances to be both an opt to have an operating business that operated before February 15, 2020 that could qualify for the first part of the credit plus have a new business. Right after that date, you know, a, a newly operating business that we could qualify for after that day's recovery startup business. And that's only 50 grand. And yeah, we get into all kinds of problems. So if, if they suggest you could get it all the way through the fourth quarter without a huge asterisk on the fourth quarter of 2021. You really should ask questions and they may not inform you about the need to reduce wage deductions based on fair income tax terms. Uh, this, as they said, can cause a domino effect of tax for the business if that return is not basically amended. Oh, and by the way, all the parties who have handled exams say right up front, the IRS is going to ask for a copy of the amended returns. To see those amendments and their position, at least a couple have reported a suggestion the position is that if you haven't filed that amended return, which should have been filed the same time you filed the claim, that that could put your claim at the very least on long-term hold. And in denial, if you don't get that done and maybe it'll just be denied, you know, well, if you don't do this, we're going to deny it, period. And if you do do this, we may still deny it. You know, one of those sorts of situations, Uh, but it's there. Also, main promoters don't tell employers they can't claim ERC on wages that report as payroll costs if they obtain payroll protection program loan forgiveness. So that would really too be two major red flags. They don't mention having to go back and fix the old tax returns and they don't talk about the pp loan program anybody who doesn't do that they seriously don't understand the program there are other signs that as a tax pro you recognize instantly for instance i saw one that this week i saw on the web that i was looking at them and th- this one suggested that that the you know the date to file your claim for refund you know is going to start closing down you know basically based on quarters. So we're going to start losing them this year. And it's like, eh, no, no, no. You know, we're going to, we're going to lose 2020 on April 15th of next year. And we're going to lose 2022 or I should say 2021 on April 15th of 20 uh, basically of 2025. And you're just going to lose them in blocks on that time. They're not going to be going by quarters or by payrolls or by anything else. And if you have somebody who claims to be an expert in this area that doesn't understand that basic point about the statute for filing the credit claim. Yeah, that's, that, that's a huge bad sign. No way around this, right? How do businesses avoid being a victim? Well, they suggest something we'll probably like is to work with a trustee tax professional. Uh, now this is something I do see a problem for tax professionals in. Because unfortunately, I know too many tax professionals that just said, well, I'm not going to handle those. Well, if you told your clients you're not handling them and you don't do anything about them and you know nothing about this, then your clients are all set up to be victims. I mean, I think we have an obligation here if you're doing business tax work, and I, the IRS takes this position too, OPR does. You know, if, if you're doing 1120 S's, you're doing, you know, 1065s, you're doing Schedule C's. You know where wages are claimed, you need to understand about the ERC rules because that interacts with income taxes. That's an income tax issue that you need to understand. And I think you need to be at least able to maybe not file the claims necessarily, but you need to be able to explain the claims, recognize the claims, and do a very good initial review of does your client qualify? Remember, you've gotten the two ways in. The reduction in revenue which is different set of rules for 2020 and 21 or you've got the you know partial or full suspension rules which is basically you need to read uh the basically sections 3 c and d there's about i think it's about seven eight pages uh that has the q a's that talk about what's a government order and it talks about what is a full or partial suspension that's the entirety of the guidance that's what you've got if you have a little bit extra time Go to 2021 49 and also read about the related party rules. That's probably one you should pick up too. you know, the no living relatives rule that we've discussed here before. Um, like it or not, I think you need to know this stuff. If you do any business returns of any type that includes schedule C's, if there's any employees, you got anybody claiming wage deductions, you really need to know this. And I think we are really doing our clients a disservice if we say, Oh, I don't just, I don't deal with that at all. I, I think that's wrong. They tell businesses don't apply unless you believe you're legitimately qualified for the credit. They can say you can follow details on IRS.gov. You can check a trusted tax professional, not someone promoting the credit, can provide a professional device. If your client really wants to do the credit with this, you know, whoever, they should have an independent professional review the application and review the justification. Somebody who is going, who is not being paid based on, you know, they get paid more the bigger the number you know, who basically is just independently going to look at this and will give an independent review of what they think about the, the claimed credit. And also how to report ERC abuse talks about filing the form 14242 reported sub- a suspected abusive tax promotion or preparers. So all of these, again, this was on this IRS's IRS notice that published this week, right? Related to this relief on the employee retention credit. It's in the news releases for the irs and you know you might want to keep copies of all the irs news releases around if you have clients that are tempted by these you may want to hand these out and remind them to be careful here the service is looking at this stuff our final case this week is looking at the case of Pond versus united states docket number 22-1537 that came out of the fourth circuit courts of appeals and the opinion came down on may Twenty Sixth. now this is kind of a comedy of errors of an IRS exam. The IRS examined this taxpayer's business, right? And their actual internal work papers showed the business had that in essence the taxpayer had overpaid taxes. But somehow in writing up the exam results, they managed to turn this overpayment into a balance due. Okay. Now by the way, apparently the taxpayer decided, you know, that you believe this this guy's CPA would want to charge him to represent him for an IRS exam. You get the feeling. That's what happened. I don't know. It never said that, but presumably because eventually a CPA arrives on the scene who actually looks at this stuff and then figures out what's going on. But apparently that CPA was not around for this. I'm assuming the client decided to, to take care of it himself, probably to save fees. This tax saving is going to really do him a lot because the legal fees, or at this point, have to be killer trying to fix the mess he made. But we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. What compounded the problem was the IRS bills him for what should be a refund. And the taxpayer goes ahead and just pays the amount due. Pays what the IRS says is due. Okay, it affects two tax years, 2012-2013. Okay, so far, so not so good after he's paid everything at some point a cpa does look at it right he finally gives his information to a cpa who takes a look at this and goes uh, uh mr pond can you come over here for a second you know uh you see this amount here this is what they owed you however when they then went to the next step it suddenly converted to you owe them right? This is a straight up mistake, right? You do not, you, you should never have sent this to them rather effectively. It seems as the way this worked, they should have sent this money to you. So we have a problem, right? You have now paid this. So we need to file a claim for refund for the years in question, right? So the taxpayer files a claim for refund with the IRS, does not use certified or registered mail to do so. Just basically sends it through the standard U.S. Postal Service, first class mail. That gets us down this road that's gonna be, as these errors continue to compound, this turns out to be the biggest error maybe we've made so far, okay? Now, we're not sure why, if he knew about 7503, if he, or 7502, if he knew about the rules, if he knew about how to handle this, if he knew why certified mail would be important or whether he's, you know, he didn't want to pay for, you know, exam representation. I'm, I'm sure, you know, I I could definitely see this person being someone who if was suggested to use certified mail would say, do I really have to? And the answer is well, you don't have to, you know, but it's a way to prove, well, you know, I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not gonna waste time at the post office. You know, they, they screwed up. Da, 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 da. Okay. There we go. So in any event, so whether or not he was told that we don't know about that but we know he didn't actually use certified or registered mail to file this claim now irc section 7502 this is misunderstood by a lot of people this is what we call the timely timely mailing is timely filing rule but people wildly misunderstand the rule let's talk about the general rule if you're not using certified mail registered mail electronic filing or an approved private delivery service about the basic rule in 7502a 7502a says if any return claim statement or document required to be filed on or before a certain date is after such period or date delivered by the U.S. mail to the agency or whoever needs where it should be filed now note that right there the first requirement of 7502a is that the document be delivered actually delivered to the in this case irs for doing a tax return okay if that's true then the postmark date stamped on the cover in which such return claim statement is mailed shall be deemed the date of delivery or date of payment as the case may be so here's here's a couple of key things to note about this requirement requirement number one it doesn't work if it's never delivered. If the, if the document never gets to the IRS, it does not matter that you could absolutely prove that it was postmarked on or before the date for filing. You could have a complete cameras, everything in the room, right? We could have a US Post Service employee who does that, who then comes in and swears at the trial that they remember, which I doubt is gonna be to happening to your trial, but let's assume. At your trial, they remember you could have, well, 150 people in the post office at the time also show up and swear that they know about that. So we've absolutely established there was a postmark put on an envelope at that point in time. It doesn't help you if that document never makes it to the IRS. Okay, So that's why when people say, I don't want, I don't you certified mail? You can just go get a proof of mailing. It's much cheaper. True, much cheaper. But the problem is that you haven't yet proved that a document ever arrived at the IRS. And if it doesn't arrive, it really doesn't matter. This clause has nothing about presumption of delivery, it has to actually make it to the IRS for this clause to work. Well, that's lousy. Right? What good's that? Right? Because we know the biggest problem is probably going to be the IRS claims. They never got it. We have a fix for that. 7502 Section C has a special provision for registered and certain other mailings and electronic filings. If you send a document or payment by registered mail, now, registered mail is a really nasty thing. The Postal Service employees will hate you when you do it. Because they have to sign off on every step of the game. it's a real mess for them to deal with. One year ahead of time, but there it is. If you get it registered, though, such registration shall be prima facie evidence that the return claim statement or other document was delivered to the address. Unlike A, which says if I just drop it off in a mailbox, I just hand it, you know, across the counter to the to the postal clerk at the post at the post office. That has no presumption of delivery. But if I get it registered, I have a prima facie presumption of delivery, meaning it is now up to the IRS to prove it didn't get to them. That's what the problem is. They have to prove it didn't arrive. Never came. There's a prima facie, essentially, or they have to prove that, you know, this wasn't the document you sent in. Now, Seaview Trading appears to be the one case I can recall where we don't know if enough facts, but it appears that, yeah, we finally found a case where they could prove it didn't arrive or at least the client had to admit because, uh, yeah, okay. There, that, that's an interesting case. We discussed that when it came down. But if I've got this and it's clear, in that envelope was the claim for refund, was my claim saying, hey, you owe me this money back because you screwed this up, right? I've got my claim for refund going in as long as it was in there and i did it certified mail it is going to be because the other side of this is the date of registration shall be deemed the postmark date so the date stamped on that registered mail receipt by the us postal service employee is going to be the date it was delivered effectively right cuz the postmark date becomes the deemed delivery date so that's going to be everything is there in that one little piece of paper everything is there i have presumption of delivery and i have presumption and i have the date of delivery now, they also said that in part two, section C2, that the IRS is authorized to provide by regulations the extent to which provisions of the registered mail rule could apply to prima facie evidence of delivery and the postmark date to certified mail electronic filing. The IRS has issued these regulations, so effectively, a certified mail receipt gets the same treatment as a registered mail receipt. So now I go in there, I pay less for certification. I get the post office employee to stamp the white receipt. I don't care about the green card. I have a tough time convincing people. But the green card doesn't matter. In fact, arguably could be a bit of a negative indicator. Why? If we don't get the green card back, and the IRS is arguing it never got to them, and they can somehow, you know, at least raise a in essence. While it's very difficult to overcome the prima facie assumption here. You have just created some evidence to raise doubt about actual delivery because the green card never came back to you. So I prefer not to get the green card. I realize your clients freak out about this. They want to know, did it really get there? It's like, well, look, if it didn't really get there and we know it didn't really really get there, that's actually puts us in a worse position. In essence, this is kind of a case where if you do registered mail, ignorance is bliss if you don't really know if it got there right? Because you have a way to shut this down. And I have definitely used this on a couple of occasions where the IRS claimed that they didn't get something. I provide the certified mail receipt, uh, IRS goes back and suddenly everything quiets down, right? The IRS will probably confirm with the postal service. That that's a legit mail receipt. Something was mailed. They should probably be able to turn from the postal service, the date on which it was mailed, right? Get that. They may come back and ask me for more information if they can't confirm that. But bottom line, yeah, you know, it generally shuts everything down. The service suddenly is stuck because guess what? They sometimes lose track of things. Okay. Now in this case, Mr. Pond requested a refund on his 2012 and 2013 taxes. And he requested a refund of the interest he had paid on his 2012 back payments. Uh, To request a refund for taxes. He says he set separate forms in a single envelope. This is not a smart idea, but okay via first-class mail to an IRS center in Holtzville, New York in July, 2017. Now that was actually three months before the, as will discover, three months before the date he would have had to have made the claim. So the claim went in three months early. Now, my guess is obviously the IRS just didn't notice the second claim in the envelope around the same time to request a refund of interest. He sent an IRS form, a form to the IRS center in Covington, Kentucky, which forwarded the request to an IRS center in Andover, Massachusetts. Okay. So we have here two centers involved. Now, as you'll discover, Holtzville is going to create a huge comedy of errors. Okay. So we have all of these communications. He gets a refund on 2012 taxes and of the interest he paid, but not on his 2013 taxes. Now, I first heard back from Andover in September about his interest refund request, right? They had received his request, wanted to copy his refund claim for 2012 taxes to confirm he was entitled the interest refund. He responded on October 3rd, which is still ahead of the date. He had until October 17th to respond that he had sent an original request of tax refund to the IRS in Holtzville. But to be helpful, and out of abundance of caution, he forwarded a duplicate copy of that 2012 tax refund request to Andover. Three weeks later, on August, on October 26th, the statutory period to claim a refund, actually it was 26th 17th, to claim the refund ended. After another few weeks, he heard from Andover again. They claimed to have shared the tax return claim with Holtsville, and some of would contact about his claim. Several months passed. He heard nothing. Then, in March 2018, right, without any further conflict contact from Holtsville, he received a refund for 2012 tax, return, including interest. Money just arrived. Bingo! He has a check. So far, so good. 2012, we've got our money. Remember, there were two years involved. What about 2013? Well, he waited. And sometime later, he contacted the IRS about 2013. At that time, the IRS were attempting to locate the 2013 Form 1030X, were unable to find it on the IRS's system. So he sent him a duplicate copy of his 2013 claim to Holtzville. Time passed. Again, he heard nothing. So he contacts Holtzville one more time, right? Who's not very good at communication, right? And learned his claim has been processed and assigned to an agent. They promised on the phone line that he would hear something from the agent. As you might guess, well, that didn't work out. More months went by, he still heard nothing. So he again contacts the IRS in Holtzville, and he learned that his 2013 claim had been closed with no refund issued. Although the claim has been closed, the agent at Holtzville could not locate a copy of the claim at all on the IRS's system. So he closed the non-existent claim, apparently. Okay. Uh, so he faxed a third copy again directly to the agent. A couple of weeks later, he received a notice of denial, informing him that his 2013 refund claim is denied because the statute of limitation had won. The, the denial letter listed the date the claims received as July 17, 2017. Those have been filed after the statute, which ended on October 26 of 2017. Okay. Keep that little detail in mind. Cause that, that also comes back in the midst of all of this. Okay. Now, he filed a formal protest denial with Holdsville. Again, as Holdsville is really good apparently doing this, he got no response. He contacted the offer and he learned his protest had not been processed. So he tried to go to higher ups. That went nowhere. He filed a protest with the Office of Appeals, but the Office of Appeals returned his protest because he didn't have a case pending. Okay, well, so he sends him back to Holdsville, and we know Holdsville doesn't return calls, so we're getting nowhere really fast. Okay. Having had enough, he filed an action right in federal court for a tax refund. The government moved to dismiss, arguing that they were not, they weren't taught a sovereign immunity because the refund claim was not timely filed. That gets us to the court that we have here. He went to district court. The case was dismissed in the district court. Right. It said it was untimely. It said, first thing is it ruled that he tried to argue the general purpose mailbox rule We'll talk about that here in a second, but the but the district court ruled that the mailbox rule is totally supplanted by the statutory rule, 7502. Okay. But secondly, they said, and they said the taxpayer was not able to prove f- physical delivery, his positions and his statements aren't plausible. So the court said unable to prove actual delivery and unable to prove by use 7502, to get a presumption of delivery and timeliness, eh, it's over. Case over, out, nothing to talk about. The taxpayer appealed this dismissal to the Fourth Circuit. Now, the Fourth Circuit then takes this case on. They're going to look at both claims. Okay. Um, as I said, it needs to be filed within six months after the notice of a computational adjustment is mailed, you know, to the partner. Uh and on, and this was apparently a partnership one is what we're going to say here involved here. Uh, you know, that adjustment was done on April the 16th, 2017. So he had to file his claim by October 16th to benefit from the waiver. Now he says he complied with it and sent his refund via first class mail postmarked for July 18th. IRS has no record of the claim. So at this point, he has to be able to show one of two things that he either can rely on a presumption of delivery or he can plausibly allege he possibly can allege physical delivery, right? So if either one of those are true, then his case can move forward or at least potentially can move forward. However, if he can't show either of those, which is what the district court ruled, he had no way, he had no way to show a presumption. There was no presumption of delivery option he could use and that he could not plausibly allege physical delivery based on his, you know, what he had put forth in his case that, Case is done. It's over. So they were going to look at those two issues here, right? So what we want to talk about first, though, is what is this common law mailbox rule that he wants to rely upon, right? And as I said, there are two distinct but related presumptions. The narrower presumption is one of timeliness, not delivery. By the way, this maps to seventy five hundred two a exactly. In other words, if you can show the document was actually delivered. But you can't pinpoint exactly when that happened then this rule would allow a court to presume that physical delivery occurred in the ordinary time after mailing right um, and this is based on historical english common law you know rules on mailboxes um, now note that of course if you had to use this rule say 502 you need to show you mailed the document or the return you know enough days in advance we would expect the postal service to have delivered it by the time the due date came 7502 does help us there by moving the date to date basically the due date is when we need to mail it but otherwise the common law rule would say let, let's say in theory if that, that that rule could apply to timeliness, if we could show it had been delivered then we could use the common law mailbox rule to basically you know prove you know in essence we testify that we mailed it on this date and as long as that date is enough days ahead of the due date then there'd be a presumption it got delivered as long as you know the only fight be over whether we mailed it or not as long as we produce proof that we mailed it basically you know in time for it to reach if we it be expected to reach its destination by the due date then it's presumed to be delivered okay the broader presumption is one of actual physical delivery right and some courts use this rule in that case proof of proper mailing of a document gives rise to a rebuttal presumption of documents physics delivered in such time the mail would ordinarily take to arrive in that case again same basic rule now we don't need to go ahead and prove it ever got to you know whoever we mailed it to we just have to show we took our steps to mail it and the court would presume that we had that it had not only been basically timely mailed you know or had timely arrived but that it had arrived and if you'll notice this is what we see in 7502c this gives us a presumption of timeliness and a presumption of delivery okay now they both come from the traditional mail they're variants of traditional mailbox rules for the common law mailbox rule now the question became once congress put in a statutory mailbox rule in Five Hundred Two. Does that simply supplement the common law rules? So this is another way to prove it, or does it supplant it altogether? And I note that courts have split on the question. Now, this case does not discuss the fact the IRS issued regulations uh, well after these cases they cite were resolved uh, that essentially, you know, provide that 7502 is the exclusive means to prove timely filing. At least for anything mailed so the court didn't discuss that but even with that in which most courts have accepted that 7502 502 is the only way to prove timely filing if the irs receives it after the due date uh, there have been at least some cases that have gone to the standard mailbox rule uh, if the taxpayer can show they mailed it well in advance of the due date so under the standard rule You know as long as we would say so many days etc in essence those courts have kind of viewed this as a supplement right because again 7502 gives us the fact that we can mail it on the actual due date we don't have to mail it far enough ahead of the date the irs needs to get it to be able to show it should be delivered right so in essence are we getting something better there in that case and are we maybe getting a beefed up mailbox rule uh, because we get proof of delivery using certified or registered mail so that's kind of the key however now in this case they announce right away they agree with the second and sixth circuit that the statute has supplanted the common law rule they note the seventh and sixth the second and sixth Circuits, not seventh but second and sixth circuits have both say the statute supplanted the rule and you can't use the mailbox rule at all Uh, the 8th and 10th circuit have said the statute merely supplemented the rule. Now, I would note, be careful there because at least the Wood case was clearly decided prior to uh, the regulations coming out where the IRS said there's only one way to do it. So be aware of that. Now, the question is, how do we decide? And so the court starts a discussion about the ways we might look at whether the statute changes. Normally, we assume we don't remove the common law when a statute comes in unless it becomes clear, uh, explicit, that the statute overrides a common law rule. And while it can be done with explicit language, the court notes also takes position that, you know, if the statute basically simply completely covers the common law situation, so it effectively overrides it. And their position in this case is, that even though it didn't expressly say the common law mailbox rule doesn't apply it. 7502 deals with everything, both variants of the common law mailbox rule deals with. And so the court concludes, therefore it serves to supplant, render irrelevant the traditional mailbox rule and 7502 becomes your method of obtaining mailbox rule protection. So basically, drop it in the mailbox, you know, drop it by the post office ahead of the due date. You still have to show delivery. Right. If you, however, drop it in the post office, you know, if you get your certified receipt, you know, it's certified or registered. Remember, you do have to get that receipt stamped by your postal employee. Do not make the mistake that happened in a case a few years ago where the taxpayer went to a mailboxes, et cetera, or UPS store. And got the employee behind the counter to just give him a receipt. And oh yeah, because what they do is they they then go to the post office and do the certified mailing. Well, turned out the teenager there had something to do that afternoon. So he didn't take the certified mail in that day. He took it in the next day. So now he had perfect proof he'd mailed it late. That probably is not what he expected to get, but it is what he got. Okay. The court holds that this, that the act, you know, basically did this change 7502 speaks directly to the same question as the presumptions, right? It does provide a complete, they say a slightly narrower set of mailbox presumptions. And it supplants a common law without need for an express statement or unavoidable conflict. Saying you had to use 7502, right? So Pond is cannot resort to the common law rule that you know it doesn't matter how much proof he gives us that he actually mailed it on that date, actually went in the mail on that date. You know, as we say, we can have everybody, we can have the whole postal service itself swear that, you know, that was the date it went in that won't help him in this case because he has to be able to prove actual delivery to the IRS and also show there was a postmark on there, which again, again, he does not have proof of delivery, right? Mailing first class, does not give him a presumption of delivery that is only given to him by doing a certified or registered mail receipt, which he didn't go get. He didn't file certified or registered mail. Therefore he lost his ability. Okay. But the panel did not agree with the district court. The taxpayer could not prove physical delivery, right? Uh, so if it was not, you know, seven thousand five hundred two does not address what happens if it's physically delivered before the due date. So if it could show that it's not a problem, now, the court finds he's not out of luck because he can still plausibly allege a claim. He said the court said that's it. Now, the district court said he's unable to show physical delivery as allegations of physical delivery are implausible. If you assume his basically, if, if you uh, if you give the complaint all reasonable influence, inferences in favor of the taxpayer, which again are all subject to proof, but he could show physical delivery. They said first thing they do. He said he's got three things he's showing, right? And the key one which we're going to talk about here is he said, okay, it was postmarked for the day July 18th. Now, that in of itself is not good enough, right? But it does start a chain of events that will help us show actual delivery of the post service as our agent, right? So th- that by itself is not enough. It's just showing the postmark, the carrot makes very clear that's not enough doesn't matter how much proof we have of that we're stuck but we do want that proof it helps us if we can add to it um they said the claims were set in a single envelope the 2012 claim was paid a reasonable inference is that if they paid the 2012 claim that they received the 2013 claim that was in the same envelope right okay. then it is so they they received them at the same time that's a reasonable for inf- inference because he we've got his testimony which IRS is not disputing currently that there were two claims in that envelope. So if there were, and if they got the 12 claim and they paid the 12 claim, then you could draw a inference that they must have had the 13 document. Now, they do note there's other possibilities. Remember, this was an IRS file up to start, so it's possible they discovered their error and just fixed it, Right. Or they might have gotten it based on a duplicate copy of the claim he sent to Andover in connection with his request of refund for 2012. You know, those other possible scenarios means that you can't just, you know, it's not the only possible way it happened is not necessarily his inference. But But they said all we have to do when we're talking about doing a dismissal here, you know, in this case, looking at trying to dismiss it based on summary judgment, is whether there is a plausible argument not whether it's probable. So they are not to find it's probable, but they said it's, you know, it's a possible plausible claim. It's plausible that Holtzville received the envelope and the fact they had the 12 claim and the 13 claim makes it plausible, which means most likely in discovery, you would want to figure out, okay, IRS, how did you get the 12 claim? You know, did you have a copy of the 12 claim? When did you receive it, et cetera? Those would all be things we'd ask about because the other inferences, you know, would would be in order for the claim to go. If we assume the 13 claims in the 12 envelope, then the IRS has to show some way they process the 12 claim without receiving the envelope that the original 12 claim and the 13 claim were in. So that would be something that would appear to be something in discovery could be, you know, IRS has to search and come up with that explanation, which they should have. Finally, he alleged led to received an IRS designing his claim, listed the data claims received was July 17, 2017. Court says you just flat out can't ignore a document from the IRS that if you just take it as true is conceding, if you take it true as written, is conceding they got the claim in time. Okay. Now the government responds this way, as they said, with a great deal of hand waving. I love that. It says that look, the taxpayer claims it couldn't it could not have been delivered on the 17th based on taxpayers' own statements. He alleged he signed the claims on the 17th. He did not place them in the mail until July 18th. A letter cannot arrive the day before it was sent. And then the judge decides to get a little cute. And he he has a cross reference to Stephen Hawking's brief history of time that did explain it might be possible to arrive at destination before departing. However, skipping that little comment, you know, the government claims the IRS obviously put the wrong date on the letter. It was a simple mistake. They said there was an explanation. The agent who authored denial letter was surely referencing a later copy, 2013, claim that Pond faxed over well after the deadline and just showed that date. Okay, but okay, except the fact that yes, assuming that Stephen Hawking's that that we're not doing backward time travel, right? We're not going to go through Stephen Hawking's theory, and we somehow we pulled that off and made it not not just theoretical but actual uh, which as far as I remember, Stephen never, you know, stephen didn't do right. We would have heard about that. Um, the IRS used the wrong date does not mean they have received a copy of the return. We, okay. We're, well, obviously it's the wrong date, right? We'd say, okay, that that's it. Uh, pronounce He got the deal for subsequent facts, but it's possible he got the date from the original and timely filed copy of the 2013 claim. And if that's the case, it may have been seen before the deadline. And, you know, as I said, we're going to give some credence here as Pond notes, they claim to have given the county of errors by the Holdsville Service Center using the date Pond signed his 2013 amendment to return as the date of his claim was received would be the least egregious error committed by the IRS in this refund saga. Give okay, a bit of sense of humor about this, huh? Probably the IRS is not laugh about this, but still there. In any event, at this stage, we need not conduct a searching inquiry into why the IRS lists a timely date of claims received. It just matters they did so. Again, probability is not, it's not, plausibility does not require probability. Okay. So they said, look, district court, this is a clear error. You know, the fact they couldn't find it, the fact they attempted to find something doesn't mean it wasn't the system or it never had been in the system. There are lots of ways that we could discover. Like I said, if we discover that 2012 claim was processed from the envelope that was postmarked on July 18th, then things are messier for the IRS to explain from this point forward, right? At that point, it becomes more problematical for the service because there's other evidence suggesting they had it, you know, explaining, how did you get that? where did we come? You probably also going to want to attempt to get that employee in there. And well, why did you say the date received was July 17th? You know, what was going on there, right? How does it go again? So it's plausible now, you know, if that's true, then his suits falls in the jurisdiction waiver. So the district court has to hold a hearing to now look at the evidence to see whether or not, you know, Pond can establish, reasonably establish, that it was in the IRS's possession. And that IRS's own letter is going to be used against it. And I suspect also they're going to be looking at how did that, you know, how did the IRS get the 2012 claim they paid? Where would it come from? But the real thing to take from this, and this is really the the practical takeaway is, and as the court concludes, there is no reason Pond should be in this position. And this is something you need to tell your clients. He cannot rely on a presumption of delivery because he didn't use registered or certified mail. Because the statute speaks clearly presumption, it displaces the prominent law of resumption that did it. As the court concludes, Pond could have mailed this claim by registered or certified mail and then Protected by the sta- and then be protected by the statutory presumption. He chose not to do so. So that's why he's got this mess of having to show physical delivery. May not be fair, but it's what's happening here. Be sure anytime your client's filing with the service and they don't want to use electronic filing, make sure you tell them that anything mailed to the service should be mailed using registered mail get the white receipt, go to the post office, get this done. Do I have to? Which I know you're going to hear. And the answer is you don't have to. But if the IRS claims they never got it, you're probably out of luck. Because, you know, Mr. Pond had a few things happen that made it possible for him to prove it. Your client probably won't have those things happen. So I tell him, you know, if, if you don't do that and then the IRS says it never got it, and you don't have anything else, you know, and you don't have any way to prove delivery, then, you know, you're probably just out of luck. So, you know, don't come back whining to me about the fact that we didn't know about this or this happened. Uh, you don't want to go down. You don't want to file it that way. That's fine. You don't want to file electronically because that's against your idea. I don't want the government knowing all this stuff about me. So, okay but don't come whining to me then when it all comes apart and you get penalized because you're unable to prove timely filing. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 30th. Hopefully you had a good Memorial day weekend. Uh, current federal tax developments brought to you every week. We try to except for weeks right around filing deadlines, uh, here by your state society of CPAs and by Kaplan financial education. Uh, I'm Ed Zollers and you know, you, you can find me, email me, edzollers.com. You can find me on the connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington. And I tend to take a look, as I said, at the Idaho discussion forums. Uh, so you have questions there and you're involved, you remember one of those state societies, you can check in there. Otherwise you can check back here next week, uh, when we'll be talking about further developments in the area of federal taxes.